Hi there, and welcome to Background World, a podcast where I get many friends over, talk about anything internet, culture related, and mostly political. Uh, pretty much a place where I just get people and ask them for their hot takes, and I actually get to discuss those hot takes in depth. Uh, something that I don't think I would be able to experience in social media because of its format. Today, I am uploading a three-hour conversation with a good friend of mine, Gelsey Gray. Um, if you're listening from this through OMF, Operation Mindfuck, you're pretty much aware of who I'm talking about. We talk about the alt-right in the US as opposed to the alt-right in Brazil and a post-alt-right uh, society, which might be what we're living in right now and our predictions for the future. We talk everything from Ben Shapiro to identity in Latino countries to history to various iterations of fascism and its our own takes on what's going to happen next. Uh, if you disagree with me on anything or if you do agree with me on anything and you want to talk to me about it and maybe start up a conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at Livestock Ascend. That's Livestock Ascend and Chaos Conceived on Instagram. Please let me know if you think I misspoke about anything. I understand that speaking about the alt-right and its rhetoric and talking about fascism today, everyone has a hot take and most hot takes do not coincide with each other. I'm just just about trying to do my best here, but I am willing to rectify anything that has been misplaced or spoken out of turn. Um, if you do enjoy this podcast and you do want to keep it going, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash Vincent I do have extra episodes there. I also upload every episode about 48 hours ahead on my Patreon. And I do have other written texts as well as music related content and readings and whatnot. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. So... I'm, I I usually don't do like intros, intros stuff. Just starts off like, like talking. Honestly, it just starts like mid conversation. Um, how you doing? I'm good. I am. I guess you can say just waking up. I also have coffee. Mm. Um, it's one p.m. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> still waking up. I mean, fair enough. I've I've had my second cup of coffee. It's extra strong. I'm fairly sure that I'm not going to be able to sleep until three a.m. It's 9 p.m. here, so... I I know, when you said that you were going to make coffee, it was like, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the price i got to pay, otherwise I would be, like, really, really sleepy right now, and it would not be productive. Mm. All right, Aww. so, um, this episode is about the alt-right whatever it means in the u.s versus whatever it means in brazil all its historic relevance all its peculiar peculiarities um similarities and differences between these two countries um for everyone from omf i am here with gelsey which is a household name and um do you want to introduce yourself as to why you're taken to be an authority in the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't give myself complete authority. Um, I My name is Gelsey. I graduated from a local California State University here in San Diego. I'm not going to name which one. There's two. 
uh, for my safety. I'm just kidding. Um, I graduated Cal State San Marcos uh, with a bachelor's in history with my specialty being U.S., I guess you could say, political and social issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and my biggest focus was post-Reconstruction. So it, that means it's af- after Civil War. Okay. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't call myself the best authority, um, but I can definitely, you know, give my perception or my perspective, I guess is a better way to put it on the alt-right. And also that I was a really big Twitter person who was fighting the alt-right all the time back in 2016. So, and I befriended somebody who left the alt-right. So I, I guess have some sort of authority there that, you know, that I, I used to fight with these people all the time when I was really angsty on Twitter. Yeah, I suppose that that's that's a really good thing to take into account if um, you consider that. Well, for all effects and purposes, I think that there's a there's a factor of the alt right which, in terms of generation, it's easier for people who are like up to thirty thirty five years of age to understand, which is the idea that we grew up in the internet culture, and that kind of affects a lot of how we consume politics and how we discuss politics. So I think that I'd be more comfortable talking about the alt-right with someone who is roughly closer to my age than like a 50-year-old historian who is, you know, has been studying it for decades and kind of has that um, outsider's perspective, um, which like is, it's fine in its own right. But um, I think that for a more complete analysis of the alt-right as a social phenomenon, it's good to have people who kind of grew up around these people and were in the Twitter fights and whatnot. Right. And, you know, and how do I even say this? So I agree. And I definitely think it's like a younger generation of fascists, you know, and that's essentially what it is. Um you know, I, I remember I did actually a project for college comparing the alt-right to the KKK. And I stand pretty firmly that it's just an online version of the KKK or neo-Nazis. Um, and it attracted young white men who felt disenfranchised by what they deemed SJW culture. And for those who don't know what an SJW is, that stands for Social Justice Warrior. And it was a phenomenon that was happening, I don't know, like 2013, 2014, well, that, it was you like know, 2016. I think it came a bit later on Brazil, 2016. Right. So, yeah. you know, we had kind of the rise of people like Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn and other kind of like online feminists who were in the YouTube sphere. And then, you know, Gamergate crashed. Which I'm around? not going to explain the... <laughs> huh? I was going to ask this later. Just go on because I'm going to ask you about Gamergate. I don't have the strongest opinions about Gamergate. I remember because I never liked Anita Sarkeesian. I thought she was, even when I was in my like young feminist days, I kind of thought that she was, how do I say it? Too much on her high horse. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. So I never really had like a vibe with Anita Sarkeesian. I will say that I watched her videos when I was like a baby feminist, like learning about like feminist perspectives in media. I thought those videos were really helpful, but 
I also was subscribed to people like Amazing Atheists who didn't like her too, so I might have been a little biased. I was kind of in that like liberal feminist thing of like, we're all just equal guys. Like that was kind of who I was back then. <laughs> We've all um, been there. We've all been there. Yeah, yeah, where it's like you're just getting into politics and social issues and stuff. And yeah. I, you know, being a white feminist, I was like, what do you mean white privilege? Like that was kind of my like MO, <laughs> which is really shitty to admit, but I'm really happy I learned and grew from that. Yeah. But so I remember being on Tumblr and this article came up and it was like Gamergate hate campaign towards feminist Anita Sarkeesian. And I just went, nope, and scrolled past it. Like I, know, I didn't know anything about it at the time. I wanted nothing to do with it because I hated her so much because I was like, oh, I had nothing to do with her and her bad eyebrows. I just couldn't do it. And, um, and so my boyfriend has a lot of strong views on Gamergate, but his kind of perception on it is that it really was about, you know, ethics and gaming journalism. I know it's a meme, but he said it really was about that. And then it was already pretty much over by the time the Zoe Quinn drama happened. So he was already out of the game that they felt like they had accomplished their goal already. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it turned into like, the gamers versus Zoe Quinn and the slut shaming campaign. And he was like, yeah, I, I bowed out way before that. A lot of the people who really did believe in, you know, yeah, the ethics of the whole thing kind of had already bowed out by then. Cause their point had already been proven, you know, yeah. before Zoe Quinn. So I, yeah. So I like to say that I don't necessarily have an opinion on it. I'm not as informed on Gamergate. I do know that the way Zoe Quinn was treated was horrible and a lot of other feminists were treated online were horrible. Um, but I don't, it was almost like I discovered like shitlord YouTube and all of those people like after Gamergate had happened. And that was kind of the, the limbo period between a lot of these online personas turning alt-right or Mm. alt-right sympathetic. So it was like, neutral liberals classical liberals and then all of a sudden it just made this dark turn when donald trump uh, announced his candidacy yeah um you're gonna have to forgive me i'm just switching connections right here so i can get a better connection and it doesn't lag or anything because my wi-fi is terrible and i'm just switching connections to preserve the call oh good you're you're good um i'm trying to remember so all good. So Gamergate, it happened around, um, when, when was it? What, like 2015, 2016? 20, 2014. 2014. Yeah, so here's the thing. Like, I, I did not know that Gamergate had happened until it was too late. <laughs> like, um, when, just around the time that Gamergate was happening, Brazil was sort of like in this whole other vibe because it was sort of like turning inwards in its political issues. We had like the huge demonstrations of June 2013. And that was sort of the catalyst for our version of the alt-right. It was not based on SJW interpretations of, you know, politics. And it wasn't much, it wasn't that much based on um, internet culture back then. Well, it was, but in Brazilian internet culture, because uh, basically a bunch of media scandals with the government back then, the PT government, sort of piled up. And um, there started to be some demonstrations sort of like kind of following the Arab Spring uh, based around uh, bus fares and transport fares because they're outsourced and they're privatized. And they were very leftist Hmm. and very 
anarcho. They were really small, but then the right just saw like an opportunity to, oh, so let's make this about everything. <laughs> let's make this about corruption and let's make this about freedom and let's, let's make this about our country and let's make this about the flag and just sort of like this sort of fascist movement, like white middle-class movement, sort of like caught it from behind, eliminated all the uh, the presence of political parties and left-wing parties mostly and just sort of made it about like this sort of nationalist um pride and that's where the alt-right from brazil kind of stemmed from and we're sort of still living in the aftermath of those of those um protests that were quite influential but it wasn't that's the thing it's it's kind of not as teenager as it started out in the u.s um it was actually Mm -hmm. quite you'd see loads and loads of people who were like in the 40s 50s 60s white people who were just sort of trying to um claim their ownership of the state that is thought to be you know how people think that the the, the democrats are communists that's Mm -hmm. sort of like that like the government was not a communist government by any stretch of the imagination it was more left than you'd say the democrats are but um it was not a proper communist government at all but that's how it got spun and it's weird it's not it's it wasn't a teenage fever you know but bolsonaro was a teenage fever back then um i think that maybe mm-hmm. if anything the similarity with gamergate i was part of a, this facebook group it would have been the chans like 4chan 8chan there were brazilian versions sure. of those yeah and there was this facebook group called um panelinha do bananal it was just this shitty ass random name and you'd you'd have all these gamers in this group and they would be making like edgy uh politically incorrect jokes and then they turned this guy bolsonaro into a meme and sort of into a hero because he was all about the anti-sjw agenda and he was really you know upfront with how homophobic he was how racist he was how he didn't give a shit about women and how you know making rape jokes and whatnot and it just sort of Mm -hmm. escalated he became like this meme and then this hero and then this bigger meme and then he said i'm gonna run for presidency and here we are (laughs) wow that's that yeah already where you know basically what happened I'm really sorry. Your, your, your audio is chopping up so bad. <laughs> like, it's, I, I can't understand it. <laughs> I don't. I really can't. I'm sorry. Okay, try now. Try again because now I can actually hear you. I think. Okay, so oh, can yes. you hear me now? Yes. Go ahead. That's that's so weird. Okay, so now I'm standing in the hallway. I was trying to be in the office to be quiet. Yeah, no, it was chopping up so bad. I could, I literally could not understand a word of what you said. Okay, let me grab my coffee and my stuff from the office. Pause really quick so that I, that's so weird because my you know. I'm in the room of my boyfriend's supercomputer, so that's very odd that, like, it's not working. Okay, I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. I'm moving. 
have so much shit in my hands because I have notes because I did some mild research to remind myself of like certain topics, you know, depending on what we wanted to talk about. I kind of did differences between Republicans and Democrats in the historical context of all that stuff just to be prepared. So is this better? Yes, it is. Um, But I did miss the entirety of your response because it completely glitched out. Okay, so remind me of... Okay, so the similarities and differences, I guess, is where we were at, right? Yeah, just sort of like Bolsonaro kind of becoming a meme and then rising to presidency from that, whereas Gamergate was something that was a bit more early, and Trump, he was already a businessman and very famous by the time he ran, right? Right, and Trump was already, like, I would argue, like a cultural meme. Like, it was Mm -hmm. before memeing, right, was that Trump was already this kind of cultural icon, that was funny and irreverent and politically incorrect. And, you know, that he, yeah, he was just essentially this already cultural icon. And then when he announced his presidency, everybody laughed. They doubted him. I remember being like, there's no way that he's going to win. Like he's, he's no Ronald Reagan, right? Like he's not gonna, he's not going to win this. And then he won the primary. (laughs) We were all like, uh, what happened? And, and then we're like, okay, so maybe well, Hillary will obviously win, right? There's no way. She's establishment. She's like pretty much dead in the middle centrist that Republicans and Democrats like her, you know, leftists don't like her and the far right don't like her, but everyone in between is pretty chill with Hillary Clinton. Nuh-uh. With the we were all very surprised, right? With the emails and Pizzagate, which... I don't even want to get into because I had a buddy who apparently was in the Chan when the idea of Pizzagate was created and it's all bullshit. So it's like, oh, you got to drop the, no, I just, I'm sorry. You got to drop the receipts on that because I just did a podcast with Ori where they absolutely explained the entirety of Pizzagate and we were going into it for like an hour and a half and there's going to be a part two. So if you're going to debunk it, debunk it now. Damn, I don't have the receipts. I'll have to connect you with my buddy, um, Dusty, because Dusty has so many feelings about Pizzagate. And because we were we were at like a party joking about Pizzagate and we're like, oh, yeah, it's all satanic cult pedophiles. And he got so livid. He was like, I was in the Chan when it happened. That's all bullshit. You know, some of the emails, yeah, are sketchy, but the majority of the stuff, like half of it was forged. It's all fake. Like it, it was a trolling campaign by 4chan. So, so I'll I'll say maybe like, these people, I'll maybe connect you with him. Please yeah. do because like honestly like these people they have hell to pay because <laughs> are you fucking kidding me the dimensions that this took honestly like it's, evolving it was, into it was so crazy so yeah crazy. it was so crazy and I remember like deep diving into Pizzagate with Micah you know years ago when it all started God it feels so long ago now even though it wasn't. Um, deep diving and we were all like tripping like no way right but then you know nothing really came of it aside from like maybe bill clinton fucks teenagers like you know i feel i feel like the epstein connections are more egregious than yeah the supposed emails right i think that there's more evidence towards yeah a lot of the higher ups in society whether it be politics or entertainment like they chilled with epstein and that's fucked up and like went to his island and there's yeah. proof of it, right? And that's the sketchy business that I think needs more attention. Like, I'm so glad to hear that Epstein's girlfriend, wife, I don't know. Uh, she's from the UK. I don't know her mm-hmm. name. But she was, she's, she's actually the daughter of that, like, 
God, who was that guy? Didn't he, there was like mystery around his death too, that he was supposedly like assassinated. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. I actually don't keep up with the UK politics. I should because I live here now, but like I kind of don't give much of a fuck because there's only so much brain cells that I can dedicate to politics and it's all divided <laughs> between the US and Brazil. So. <laughs> okay, so uh, uh, somebody I'm sure when this is eventually posted is going to be like, Gelsie, you fucking butchered this story. Um, so there was some guy who ran a newspaper. His last name was Maxwell, but he was from, I think, eastern europe i don't know um and he like went into debt with the uk uh, government he was like a million or so dollars in debt and it was just, like back in like the 70s and he was highly critical of a middle eastern government or something and then he mysteriously died because he fell off his yacht and i don't know no they did recover his body but there was this big conspiracy of like oh, was it a hit because he was critical of this government or did the UK assassinate him? Like everything about his death was super sketchy. And the girl or the woman who was like Epstein's right-hand man is his daughter, Jesus <laughs> which is like God, the craziest shit in the world. Yeah. So look, look up, look her up and, you know, do a deep yeah. dive into like her father because it is a wild conspiracy. I know we're going off track right now, but like, yeah, no, it's, but it's really I'm wild. Interested. Yeah, it's just like conspiracy incest going here. Like all the all the conspiracies just sort of like entwine between each other. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know the thing about Peter Gates that like, y- you look at it, and um, once the episode with about QAnon goes up, it's just so obvious how like it's e- it could have so so easily been dismissed. You know, mm-hmm. it could have so easily been dismissed because the the, the original post was so poorly strung together and so oh totally you know um but i think there's something about the u.s in terms of truthers since 9-11 or maybe since way before that where people they kind of don't want to take things at face value and that's fine but they take other things at face value like the first wild card conspiracy theory that a maniac throws on the internet they just go like that that's it that's it while still sort of like being a bit oblivious to some stuff, sketchy stuff that has actually happened, like MK Ultra and Guantanamo mm-hmm. Bay and et cetera, et cetera. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, even my brother's on that path right now where he's all about conspiracy theories. Like he was telling me, he goes, Do you know about the Denver airport? And I'm like, I don't even want to know. Like, I just don't, don't go on this path <laughs> with me. Because I always tell people, I said, conspiracy theories are super fun to do like deep dives into because it is the wildest shit ever. However, you have to be very careful in which conspiracy theories that you put like your heart into. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Because there's some that are very, to me, obviously bullshit. I think there's aspects of Pizzagate that's very obviously bullshit, right? As you said, the original post was so poorly strung together. Um, I definitely think there's some weird things, right, in the email. I think, dare I say, the 9-11 thing is a little odd, right? But I don't, I try to distance myself from some of these conspiracy theories because the people who associate with these conspiracy theories are wild like i don't i don't i'm trying not to say crazy or anything like that it's just wild like it's just the the links that they go to to justify their quote-unquote evidence like i remember when zeitgeist came out everyone was like it's so mind-blowing it's so mind-blowing and i'm like the first half of the movie is talking about how all religions are similar which a we know that already but two most of the facts that they use to compare jesus christ to all these other historical figures in religion is all bunk it's not true Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no evidence to support that. Yes, there's similar stories and stuff, but 
you know, Sargon of Akkad, right? Not the YouTuber, the actual person, <laughs> right? It's, it's um, amazing that we have to specify that now. Um. It's terrible that we have to specify that now. <laughs> Fucking Carl Benjamin, what a twat. Um, and that they were like, oh, he also died at 33 and that he was conceived of a virgin birth. Bitch, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was a real person that existed and he was essentially a dictator. So like, I don't know, like I, I don't get Jesus vibes from Sargon of Akkad. Can I, can I uh, put a name on the table for you to Google and be very, very shocked with what you'll find? Here, let me get a pen so I can write it down. But yes, absolutely. Yeah. I love this shit. Um, <laughs> it's not a conspiracy. It's a thing that actually happens. But once you look it up and you see what, what they advocate for, I think that honestly, like that might might be the most condensed form of pure evil I have ever seen. It actually gave me chills and I don't usually get chills. I didn't get chills with the alt-right, but these guys on next level shit. Ooh, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell um, me, They're tell called, me. called The Order of Nine Angles. The Order of Nine Angles? Yes, O9A for short. Um, they're Satanists, neo-Nazis. It's just like it's it's trope of everything that's evil, but once you see how far they go into their readings of magic and what they use in their rituals and what they advocate for, you just go like, mate, you're just being evil for the sake of being evil. You just want to do bad fucking shit. You just want to hurt people and do bad things. That's your that's the only motivation because if you think about fascism, fascism is like pure evil, don't get me wrong. But they try to justify it. They're constantly trying to justify it with this mythos of a past empire that they can run back to. They try to justify it with um, the idea of degeneracy in modern age. They they try to justify it with the idea of race. They're always trying to justify it so they can seem like the good guys. These guys, they just absolutely. They literally they worship both Stalin and Hitler because both of them killed a lot of people. Oh, gross. That's how fucking. That's how fucking mental it is. And when, once it, you really get to read it, you go like, "This is dark. This is dark shit." I'm really excited to read it because I, I love that kind of shit. Not like not that I support <laughs> it, but it's just like I love getting yeah, freaked yeah. out by reading shit. That's why I got into conspiracy theories too. Because again, even if I don't believe in them, I think a lot of them are really scary, and it's like, and they give you chills, and it's freaky. There's a um, podcast called Popular Front, which is like a gla- grassroots pop- podcast about warfare. And they've got an episode called O9A Rising, which is about the order of nine angles. And it's just, it just, it just makes you a bit scared because, you know, when you go like and you watch those movies about the deep web and you see like the boogeyman of, you know, pedophiles and snuff films, these guys actually do this shit. Like they're the, the living so incorporation crazy. of the boogeyman, you know? Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. I guess to circle back to fascism really quick so that we can yeah, 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 get back a little on track. Yeah. So the the thing about fascism, especially, I, I wouldn't even argue in the modern age or the contemporary age, maybe if I wanted to be more correct. That in the contemporary age, it definitely appeals to an audience, especially in the US, at least that I've seen, that it appeals to people who feel like they're disenfranchised or that they are disenfranchised by class. But then there's the argument of, that no, you're disenfranchised based on race, um, that because of affirmative action, because of feminism, because of cultural Marxism, which is a dog whistle for anti-Semitism, by the way, um, for those who didn't know, um, (laughs) um, that instead of it, 
uniting the people based on class, right? Because we live in a structure, right, that disenfranchises everyone based on class, with the exception of like the one percent. Um, but they go, no, all your problems are caused by you know people of color and women and LGBTQ people and those dirty commie Democrats, right? And yeah. and it appeals to them because people want to be the heroes of their own story, and if they start off in victimhood, you know, then this rise. If I'm part of something that's important, then I'll become like a hero. Yeah, you know? exactly. and I think and I think that's really prevalent, especially in U.S. society, where we're very individualistic and not so collectivist, right? We're not empathetic towards each other, which is really sad. And this pandemic, I think, has shown that the U.S. is not empathetic towards each other. Yeah. Um, you know, and so fascism appeals to a very specific audience of, dare I say, white cis straight males, you know, who are either disenfranchised by their class or are disenfranchised on, on their own damn fault. You know what I mean? Or mental illness. Like, it's just, like, incels and pe- the guys who were still angry about Gamergate, even though it was already resolved. Like, the alt-right and fascist ideologies and Donald Trump appeals to them because it makes them feel like they're justified in their victimhood. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think that, um, furthermore, like, that that is a lot of the justification behind the the very niche like sort of grassroots fascism if i can use that sort of expression um once you totally. really get into like chan boards and you know facebook groups and people who are actually dedicated to um some fashion of neo-nazism and then when you see it kind of growing you see that it stops being about um just about people who feel uh, racially or culturally different, disenfranchised, and it starts to be something a bit more economic-wise. Um, mm-hmm. In in a certain way, if you think, um, there's a book uh, from a, a, a Brazilian judge that basically who basically argues that um, capitalism is built to have crisis within. Um, and one of the and the thing is about it is that. The neoliberal pipeline, it eventually is going to fertilize the ground at some point for fascism to start to blossom because eventually an economic crisis is going to hit. You can't have healthy capitalism forever, you know? Um, right. Not if you, even if you try to believe on some sort of Milton Friedman sort of free market at all costs um, idea it's gonna it's gonna get into like a bubble it's gonna it's gonna crash at some point and when it crashes you've got a working class and a lower middle class who are going to take the worst of it and even a upper middle class in the case of the 2008 recession um 100% yeah and then as it grows into like this economic plane you've got people who may not be identifying with this whole um white uh fear that is fostered around these niche uh, groups, but they're going to start feeling uh, left set aside by the government who is trying to reconcile a bunch of uh, interests that really can't be recon- reconciled, like the bailouts between from people from Wall Street and everything. Mm-hmm. And they're going to feel left out. And once they're left out, they're going to go for whatever agenda that promises them strength. And the agenda that promises strength is either communism or fascism to a certain degree but the thing is to argue for communism w- with these people is a lot more difficult in certain senses than 
fascism because fascism just kind of, kind of it plays a lot on pride and a sense of pride that's easier for you to connect with like pride of your race pride of your nationality mm -hmm. pride of where you come from whereas um trying to argue with people like about the pride of being poor and mm -hmm. trying to make them understand that you can you should overthrow an economic system that has been around for centuries rather than mm -hmm. to tell them just like no 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 capitalism is fine what's wrong is the immigrants or the lgbtq people the degenerates etc it's a lot more harder for you to argue for communist revolution than it is to argue for fascism in these in these sorts of scenarios not that it's it shouldn't be done you should always argue towards um you know a bit more of a left-leaning understanding of things But fascism just gets so appealing in the, in these in these moments that it sort of just, it kind of becomes a bit of a in on a long enough timeline it becomes a consequence of uh, neoliberalism and capitalism to a certain extent. You can even try and welfare and social democrat your way through it, but you can see that a bunch of Nordic countries, Sweden, F Finland, you know, uh, Brazil mm -hmm. in, in the in the example of Lulism who well lulism was a bit of a sort of a latin american fashion of of sort of social democracy but a bit more inspired in a in a worker movement vein uh rather than sort of it's it's a bigger country so it's a bit different but even right. lulism and ended up being the target of of neo-fascism and lula went arrested for that and now bolsonaro is president so Right. As it starts expanding and stops being that niche thing, that really neo-Nazi thing, people just start catching on to fascism because it's so easy to argue for it. It's not morally correct, but the economic setup that we have, it's going to inevitably like it's a it's a bit of a pipeline that kind of kind of keeps us resisting fascism forever, you know. We'll, we'll right. always have to even when Trump's gone. Even when Bolsonaro is gone, even when Duterte is gone, even you know, even when all these people are gone, we're gonna have to. There's gonna be new iterations of this because if we don't overthrow the system and really rethink the way that we organize ourselves in society, these working class people are always gonna have to take the deep end of things, and they're always going to find it easier to reappeal to fascism way down the line. You know, absolutely, uh, and I that was. I'm trying to think of the best way to respond to this because I don't, I agree that I think that it's easier to argue for fascism when you are in like, let's say like a different disenfranchised class, especially the poor, because fascism enables the power structure in the economic sense to stay in place. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, in Nazi Germany, like they were incredibly capitalistic and free market where even despite the socialist in their name, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, they were highly free market and it keeps the, the authoritarian government in place because it's all about the money. If that makes sense. I yeah. hope, I, I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, and in the U S in particular, um, I don't know how, you know, discussions of world war two and communism had taken, I don't know how your education system in Brazil handled that. If, um, But here it's, we're basically trained from a very young age. The moment we start talking about World War II and the Holocaust, that it's communism is, despite essentially being the hero of World War 
two, right, was that they were always the bad guys, right? Stalin was bad. Mm-hmm. Communism is bad because everyone lost their individuality and had to work in labor camps. And which, again, was true in Stalin's Russia was that, like, it was really bad, you know. So we have this association here in the United States with communism, with authoritarianism, where we don't get perspectives that, you know, I guess are anarchists in a sense. So we're, we're taught from a very young age that communism is bad, or if anything, communism is just as bad as fascism, you know, and which is why people, especially in the United States are so resistant to even discussing socialist policies. And even when you bring up the fact that FDR in reality was basically a socialist, if you really look at the policies he put Mm -hmm. in place and the things that we still have in place because of Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt, that people are like, no, that wasn't socialist. That was him saving the country. And it's like... Even Eisenhower, isn't it? Like Even Eisenhower, which is... I don't know a crazy amount about Eisenhower. He was a uh, World War II general, I think. Um, and when he became president, yeah, he taxed the wealthy 90%. Like... That's a yeah. huge socialist move, right? And he yeah. was a very right-wing president, you know? And also, too, like, even between the divide between Democrats and Republicans that, like, you know, it's a fine line today, right? But the divide on, like, moral and social issues are very great. But, like, economically, they're pretty much the same. And it was the same back then, too, except it wasn't as divisive, mm-hmm. I would argue. It's definitely more divisive now. Um, and part of me would argue that it's because of the way capitalism is now and that the United States turned into a service-based economy rather than like an industrial economy. That is why it got so bad. Um, That's interesting. I feel like I'm, I hadn't thought about that. Right. That like the United States doesn't export a lot. Do you know what I mean? Like we're entirely service-based. So restaurants and tech and, you know, that we're kind of the quote unquote innovators, right? But we outsource everything to other countries that do the exporting for us. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, when I think about how I learned, I actually was thinking about that today. I was thinking about the first history class. The more that I've been reading and like keeping up with the news, the more I've been thinking about my high school um, classes. I thought about my first history class where I learned about fascism. And I'm going to be honest, I kind of resent the way that my um, teacher put it because he was a good teacher. He he saw the way that he explained history from ancient Rome to um, Second World War. He kind of made it sound a bit Game of Thrones-esque. He kind of like put a lot of action into it and kind of made it sound like a bit of like a movie, like you're listening to someone tell the the story of a movie. And that was good. It kept Mm -hmm. us engaged. But the way that he explained fascism, he kind of did the same thing. You know that movie, Do Well, um, The Wave? No, I do not. Um, It was, if I'm not mistaken, first it was made in the US, US in the 70s, and then it got remade in Germany in 2000 and something. And it's a movie about a history teacher who decides to try to make people understand because everyone was like, oh, how did Nazism catch on? It was so terrible. And he just goes like, OK, so let's try fascism. And he sort of like creates, makes the, the, the classroom into a fascist environment and just sort of like tries to inflame people's pride of being 
in that classroom and they kind of become like a gang like a fascist gang and they start like mm-hmm. harassing people and setting fire to things and like beating up people and doing graffiti with the symbol of a wave because a wave is sort of like this like heel and mm-hmm. um the way that my teacher sort of explained it to me um he used a personal example he didn't really do the experiment he didn't do that i'm not going to credit him with that because it would be unfair but what he said was uh he he used to he basically told like a, a childhood story where he was always getting into fights and scrambles with his sister and one day his um father walks up and says hey so um you guys are always fighting amongst each other but um blood's thicker than water so try and uh rip this one telephone book page and they're just like it's easy and then they're like okay now try and rip the whole book and they couldn't rip the book and he just goes like see we're stronger when we're together mm-hmm. and then he says like this is sort of like the the rhetoric that was used to catch for fascism to catch on and okay it's not necessarily wrong but you miss a lot of nuance that is absolutely imperative to to explain why fascism is wrong because if you explain like like that it doesn't sound like it's that wrong you know (laughs) right and it's like I, i definitely understand that argument you're right it's completely not nuanced and it doesn't get into the nitty gritty like it it's 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 more or less like a blood's thicker than water scenario but instead of it being your family it's race yeah. and that's i think i'm guessing that was the angle he was going for is that they were uniting based on like this aryan kind of race yeah he goes into issue. A- after that he sort of went into the nietzsche um ubermensch concept and just sort of like mm-hmm. told people why hitler sort of appropriated that to talk about the aryan race and then he says like it's wrong like don't don't go for it but i think that the thing about if you're going to explain like fascism you really have to um, explained some very clear falsehoods in fascism, which begin not just by saying like, oh, the Ubermensch. You have to say like, fascism is uh, obsessed with a mythical past that just isn't true. They want to right. restore this empire-like society and they fake it to make it seem like everyone was happy when living it under fascism, under this empire, when people weren't fucking happy, it was like a feudal empire system that just doesn't work anymore. And it's based on violence. You need to like, you need to set your foot in with that. And also just as a, as an observation as to what I said before about the economic plane, um, when I speak about the working class being left aside and sort of like grasping onto fascism, I do believe that these things are a bit more nuanced than that, just for the listener to know that I don't think that it is a general blanket rule, especially because these questions are racialized. I don't think that um, people of colour, working class people of colour would like catch onto fascism or LGBTQ people. Um, it's just sort of my way to like explain why white people, straight people, rural um, people would sort of catch onto that as it has happened time and time again. But absolutely, yeah, it do, does have nuance. But I just sort of game with like an economic explanation that's not too good because I'm not an economy <laughs> teacher. But yeah, and, and 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 neither am I. And I I agree with the statement that of course it it seems almost like an obvious answer to be like of course people of color and or at least the majority of people of color because there's definitely been some you know Latinx people who are kind of sympathetic towards the yeah. the alt right right. Yeah. I mean George. 
George Zimmerman is probably one of the best examples of mm-hmm. a Hispanic man, you know, kind of allying himself with white supremacist groups, right? Candace because Owens he was, well, if, if, yeah. for those who, Candace Owens as well, right? It's always this token, mm-hmm. token person of color who's going, no, 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 no. All those other black people are wrong or all those other Hispanic people are wrong. All those other gay people and LGBTQ plus people are wrong, right? So we got people like Blair White. We got people like yeah. Milo Yiannopoulos. We got people Candace Owens. We got um, fucking, oh God, what was his name? Even um, our black Supreme Court justice, I always, I think it's Clarence Thomas. Is it Clarence Thomas? I'd have to double check that one. I feel really bad not knowing because again, I want to go to law school. But like, <laughs> you know, it, it, we have these kind of like, token right-wing minority people who belong to these little minority groups going, yeah, no, this is great. Ignore all the, all the other people saying that, you know, capitalism and racism and and stuff like that is bad. Like, no, 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 no. We're, we're in a post-racial society right now. We're in Mm -hmm. a post homophobia, transphobia society now where it's like, that is so far from the truth, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was going to say something too. And I'm like, it was on the tip of my tongue. Oh, that, so, yeah, so it, it, I was going to say that the reason why, let's say, white working class uh, or people who are in the dominant group kind of working class is because they get treated as the default of a person, yeah, right? they do. And that's why they tend to side on, this, on the side of fascism, if I dare be redundant, because they consider themselves to be the default. The straight person considers themselves to be the norm, right? Mm. Or the white person considers themselves to be the norm, Right. Like we don't we don't call white Irish people Irish American. Right. We call them white, Mm -hmm. you know, like but we call black people African-Americans or Mexican-Americans. Right. Like we or we don't even add American to Mexicans here either. We just say that they're Mexican, even though they're U.S. citizens, which is just like, okay, Mm -hmm. so it's like, I don't know. I don't know where I got on that tangent. Just ignore that. But basically that white people see themselves as the default which is why that they can ignore other minority struggles because they're like, well, I don't relate to that at all. Of course you don't relate to that because you, you don't, don't live it. you don't go through the, you don't live it. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know? And I think that it's, it's very, 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 um, there's a really good hook on what you said about Latinos, uh, grasping onto, onto fascism because, um, I grew growing up in Brazil, like point blank, there is no questions asked. I'm white, right? Mm-hmm. And when I put myself in the context of the UK, like 99, 95, 96% of my experiences here are those of a white person. You know, I don't get racially mm-hmm. profiled. Um, I am very, what people would call white passing. Um, my only problems with uh sort of like the feeling of otherness have been at work because of my accent which is not mm-hmm. perfectly british apparently and um yeah and people just like asking me where i'm from and just sort of like making some cheeky jokes and this and that but here's the thing right it, it's it's uh it's where are you from i'm from here no but where are you really from no where right are you it's really it's... from and i'm just right, like, i'm exactly. from north london nah you're not from north london wave hi there it's editing vince here just trying to explain a bit more further because i don't think that i actually use the correct language in this part of the podcast i think that these experiences that i have gone through they're a lot more closer to xenophobia per se than anything racially related as my understanding of racism stems a lot from my experience in Brazil, and that's an experience of privilege. Um, 
these sorts of microaggressions in terms of accents and questions of where you come from, they're a lot more closer to a problem and preconceptions related to uh, nationality and immigration rather than anything stemming from skin and ethnicity and race. Uh, feel free to correct me. Feel free to drop me a line if you think that there's anything that I have misspoke here and I will be happy to address it next podcast. In, if, if we really get to the nitty gritty of it, my family is Brazilian, has been Brazilian mm-hmm. for at least four generations. Um, I would be, if I, I believe that if I went to the US, I would be Latino. And mm-hmm. most white Brazilians... They're Latinos. They need to understand that they are Latinos, but they live in denial of that fact. They think they're white. They're white as paper. They're white as the clouds above us. They're white as cocaine. They are white. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And if they go to Florida, because Florida is where you get the, the biggest bulk of Brazilians who go there for Disneyland, they mm-hmm. think that they can just mingle with you gringos and just talk to you with that very heavy accent. And well, that's yeah, you guys I, will see them as equal. <laughs> I was going to say that's really interesting because you're not the first person to tell me that either about Brazilians in particular and other people from South America who have a little more Spanish in them, dare I say, right, where they look more white. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of this aspect of Californian history, which is really interesting, is that it was a similar phenomenon Um, when California was still a part of Mexico and maybe even earlier than that. So you had kind of like the, the racial classes, right. Of California. And at the top of the classes were the Californios, right. Who were apparently a hundred percent Spanish and they were the ruling class of California. However, there's a lot of historical proof that not necessarily that it matters, but it's just, it's part of that kind of, no, we're white and we're Mm going to be white kind of thing. And so we're in the ruling class, but a lot of the Californios were in fact mixed with native and um, other Mexicans. So they would basically be Mexicans being like, yeah, I'm a Californio, but it was like, they were trying so hard to be like, no, we're Californios. And it's, I guess it's just like a similar phenomenon, but it was happening like way back in the day, like in in the 18th and 19th centuries before California was absorbed but yeah all the californios were basically mexicans pretending that they were full-blooded spanish when in fact they more than likely weren't (laughs) (laughs) so So, here's the thing that's a really curious thing historically that i think that because you told about um the spanish people going to california um the nazis fled to brazil in the end of World yes. War II. And they went and Argentina. And Argentina, yeah. And it was southern mm-hmm. Brazil. So we do have a very clear awareness in Brazil that, you know, like it's sort of like a meme. We just joke, like, if you go to northeast Brazil, you get beautiful beaches and beautiful people. And northeast Brazil is mostly the, the demographics in, in northeast Brazil. They're predominantly black. North Brazil is where you've got the rainforest. So you see a lot of Native American communities um, when you go mm-hmm. to Southeast Brazil, it's sort of like the urban, it's where you've got Rio and Sao Paulo, and it's also the town that I come from, so it's a bit more diverse, mm-hmm. and also Sao Paulo has the biggest co- uh, the biggest Japanese cop- population out of Japan. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's huge. And then when you go to South Brazil, everyone just says, oh, that's where the Nazis are. <laughs> so... <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, you got you get a lot of people who are descendants of Germans, Ukrainians, Polish people, mm-hmm. Italians, and uh, they have this really weird European pride where you've got um, small towns, really, really small towns in the countryside of southern Brazil where they speak German instead of Portuguese. And wow, yeah, there's like this really huge fixation with your last name because that sort of indicates where you come from and where your families come from, you know, sort of like your social economic status. And that's right. where you get sort of like the neo-Nazi skinhead culture, especially with the youngsters, you know, the skinhead gangs walking down the street and like beating other people up and clashing with punk mm-hmm. gangs. In Brazil, that's where you'll find that mostly. Also, Sao Paulo, but that's because Sao Paulo is a 12 million population city. It's fucking yeah. huge. So, huge. yeah, Sao Paulo and southern Brazil, they are loaded with these things. And I think that my first, uh, my first memory of seeing an actual neo Nazi was when I was like 15 because this skinhead neo-nazi guy posted a picture on facebook a couple blocks away from my house in a very famous downtown square i live downtown where he Mm -hmm. had a chain and he had the chain around this homeless man's neck and he was um like smothering him he was just like pulling on the chain just like choking him took a picture of that posted it on facebook started getting a bunch of repercussions people were starting like going like fuck around find out trying to find out where he was tried to flee and got arrested yeah so when we talk about um how bolsonaro if i'm not mistaken his grandfather fought for the nazis so there's like a huge connection and there's this really there's this big question in brazil about its identity where brazilians they have a really hard time, white Brazilians, of course, they have a really mm-hmm. hard time accepting themselves as Latino and they have a really hard time accepting themselves as global South or third world country, depending on what language you use. They have a really mm-hmm. hard time because they want to believe that they are superior because, you know, Brazil's history is really convoluted and I'm not going to go into all of it. But one of the things that has mm-hmm. happened in Brazil um was after the abolition of slavery, there was this thing called, you know, why people say that uh, Brazil is such a diverse country and anyone can look Brazilian and you've got all the these different skin tones and different, you know, traits and Brazil is such a beautiful country because it's such a mixture. Well, the reason why that is is because of something called miscegenation, which mm-hmm. is uh, when slave owners decide, well, former slave owners um, decide to apply social Darwinism to mm-hmm. get to the idea that, uh, well, if we can't get rid of black people and we can't enslave them anymore, let's them, let's make them whiter. And they start right. to, well, procreate is not the white, right word for this. It, it was essentially eugenics, but they sort of like started to sexually violate um, black people. Slave, I think that that probably actually started before the abolition of slavery. I'd have to look it up. But it was just like this I'm, very long process of trying to widen people. So what, that's why you see how many, so many light-skinned black people in, in Brazil, a lot of it has to do with this process, you know? It, very similar to the U.S. I wouldn't say that it was like a strategic, like, miscegenation on the U.S.'s part. Um, but yeah, we do have a lot of 
white skinned black people here and that are mixed. So it's like, it's, you know, you'll see like, I remember Buzzfeed did like some video a long time ago where, you know, they did like ancestry tests, right. To Mm -hmm. analyze their DNA and see where they come from. And then some of the African-American people on there saw that they had like, you know, 25% Northwestern European. And what that means is that more than likely that their ancestors were sexually assaulted and their ancestors were the product of a a rape from their slave owners. You know, so we had similar things here. Um, I'm not super familiar with eugenics policies here in the United States. Um, I know that it happened. Um, and I know that that's where kind of Hitler got his idea for the Holocaust was a lot of American scientists and scholars who were participating in eugenics and social Darwinism and scientific racism and scientific racism was a big thing here in the United States. And it was, and it was one of those. Yeah. yeah, and it was one of those things that kind of encouraged white people to feel superior even if they were poor. And which is essentially essentially how they were able to keep that divide in place was that, you know, yeah, you may be poor and you may be in the Appalachias, but you know what? You're white though. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. You're better than them because they're inferior, right? Mm-hmm. And you're part of the superior race. And that was all, you know starting especially during the reconstruction days so that's like right after um the civil war ended so reconstruction refers to the time as the name implies the the rebuilding of the south and bringing equality to um former enslaved people um and during that time we actually had a lot of um enslaved people in government we had a lot of black representatives in the south um but then jim crow laws started and that's when um, all of those rights that they were starting to get got pushed back again. Yeah. So anyway, that was just a side note, but yeah, so we had a similar thing of like eugenics and scientific racism and social Darwinism and stuff like that. And, you know, which I don't think Charles Darwin intended to, I did you, you probably watched the philosophy. I saw, I was going to bring it up like right now. (laughs) I was going to bring it up right now. I saw it three times. It's my favorite video on that channel. I, I was mesmerized when I watched that. Yeah, because oh, like, it's so good. Like that, I I know of. Of course, I studied Darwinism, and of course, I did study a bit of social Darwinism as well. But I think that I I had never really gotten into the deep end of the social implications of eugenics and like its mm-hmm. roots. And you know, I didn't know much about Malthus. I didn't know much about Herbert Spencer, and I didn't know much about how many arguments you could extract from Marxism in terms of eugenics and how Darwinism. yeah mm-hmm. it's, for me it was like i i knew that it was bad i knew that it happened in history but i hadn't really t- taken the time to look into it but um yeah that video was fucking amazing right so good it was so good, so good. and 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 definitely scientific racism and social Darwinism played a huge role, which obviously was not Darwin's intention and philosophy too, but talked about that too, where it's like, he knew that by putting this out, it would become mm-hmm. used for the wrong things. Yeah. And so he was very specific in his wording. Also too, I must've blocked out Malthus's because I know I took an intellectual history class my last semester at Cal mm-hmm. state and <laughs> we had to read something from Malthus and I must've blocked it on my memory because I fucking hated reading it. It was so annoying. And I was just like, 
oh, why did I do this to myself? We had to talk about it. It was awful. I'll have to like take a picture of like my notes because it's me just screaming in my notes, being like, fuck this guy. Like, <laughs> just, he's so annoying. And it's relevant, um, isn't it? When we talk about, think about people talking about humanity being the virus and it's such a thin line that people seem to still be crossing and it's Absolutely. so easy to fall into eco-fascism, which is like a term that I know that so many people must think that it's so weird. Like, what do you mean eco-fascism? Like, eco is such a lefty, progressive thing, conserve the, the, the you know, preserve the, the nature, <laughs> and, you know, sort of like the Extinction Rebellion, Greenpeace, you know, Peter. Right what have you like really like sort of trying to be progressive even if they're not really but at least attempting to be so but when you think about eco-fascism and then you get into that sort of eugenical side of like the the whole Malthus idea of we don't have enough people so some will have to go and then you see how present that is now especially with all the bullshit that's been going around centering around uh, trans people and healthcare and Trumpism you just go a bit like, oh, just kind of gives you It's chills. so, yeah, it's so dangerous. And I remember me and someone in my family who I'll, I will not label which part of my family he's from, but we had a discussion about he was worried that his son who has Asperger's and he was dating this girl at the time who was bipolar one and uh, like almost borderline schizophrenic or had like schizoid affective disorder. And he was basically saying that like he didn't want them to get married and he didn't want them to breed because, you know, then his grandchildren would have, you know, these inherited mental illnesses and that we need to, you know, potentially do like a program where people who are mentally ill shouldn't breed. And I was like, I need to hold you up there because that's eugenics and you need to be very careful, especially because you're a Jewish man. That you need to be very careful about the way you say that. <laughs> it's yeah. so dangerous. And it's such it's a thing. It's so line. dangerous. And he doesn't think that way anymore because, you know, we had essentially called him out being like, dude, again, you're Jewish. Like, don't say shit like that because that's borderline eugenics, right? That is eugenics, but I needed to press it lightly. Yeah. You know, and obviously he doesn't think that way anymore, but like people think like that to this yeah. day. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it's it's a very I hate using the word slippery slope, but it's a slippery slope, okay? Like, <laughs> like it's like it's like a it's it's a fucking olive oil greased up slope. Like it's it's yeah, it's so like honestly because it kind of it, it disguises itself as care, it disguises itself right. as benevolence, as like caring about the person's future. And oh, I don't want my you know my my son or my grandson to suffer you know like i, I don't right. want, i want i don't want this child to suffer because the world is so harsh so the problem is clearly the child and not the world you know like um right and- exactly and and ecofascism falls in line with that same logic except with the environment and so mm-hmm. with ecofascism it leads to the same place that regular fascism does which is violence against people yeah. Um, to decrease the population of the world, who who do you think the eco-fascists are going to target first, right? People of color, mm-hmm. fucking queer people, right? And because it, it, it's, oh, well, you look at, you know, who's more evolved, right? And so you want the, the best of the best to handle the climate crisis and decrease the population. Okay, so you're going to wipe out huge swaths of people who, you know, are not white. That's just, I'm just going to say that they're, they're not white. And you can call that a conspiracy theory if you want, listeners, but that's, that's where eco-fascism will eventually lead because in the end, it's fascism. Yeah. 
And it's very curious that we're talking about this the same day that Trump just said that we're going to have to live with COVID. <laughs> yeah. Like, by the way, happy America Day, by the way, that we're oh, having yeah, a conversation is, about it? fascism. It's the 4th day. of July. Yeah, it's the 4th of July. All Are countries matter, though. So, so happy 4th of July <laughs> to you, UK man. Um, because all countries matter. Yeah, all co- countries <laughs> matter. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wish a very happy Fourth of July. Actually, there are Brazilians who are celebrating the Fourth of July for America. The Bolsonaro <laughs> tweeted something like "Happy Fourth of July," and everyone was like, "You're fucking Latino, you dipshit!" Like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. I think that back when he was doing like his presidential run, like campaign, he went to the U.S. to talk to Trump or something, and there's a picture of him saluting mm-hmm. the American flag. That's before yep. he got elected, and it was running around this picture of him saluting the American flag, and, were, and people were like electing him on the basis of Brazilian patriotism. See the paradox? Like everyone, no one wants to be Brazilian yeah. because they all want to be white and gringo. But at the right. same time, everyone wants talking about this Brazilian pride that cannot be of color, even though like eighty percent of Brazil is to not say like 90% of Brazil or 95% of Brazil. If you follow the one drop rule, a hundred percent of Brazil. Right. Exactly. And, um, it's just, you know, it is what it is. Like people, they want to have pride, but they're ashamed of everything that Brazil is. And yeah, it's, it's, it's deep. Uh, That's why I think that you can't really solve things just by tackling them in the plane of, I mean, it's great communism. I'm all for it. I'm an anarchist. It's great. Leftist politics, fantastic. Okay, um, Green Deal, great. Queer whites, rights, mm-hmm. you know, great. You know, I- identity politics, that's great. But if you don't tackle things um, also on the plane of colonial- colonialism, decolonialism mm-hmm. specifically, a contra-colonialism, mm-hmm. you're dealing mm-hmm. with a country who has never addressed its own identity as a country, you know? This- right, and and even in the U.S. where we're aware that we genocided a bunch of Native Americans to be here, right? And mm. we're aware of this, but yet there's this cognitive distance here in the U.S. that, like, it, it wasn't that bad. And that, you know, yeah. but in the reality, you know, I forget which historian said this, but it's our original sin, right, is slavery mm. and the genocide of millions of native americans and that to deny that any of the people of color native americans african americans latin americans however you want to throw it like to deny that Mm -hmm. they go through struggles of race every day despite living in a quote post-racial society is totally bunk yeah and it's because that we still have these colonialist attitudes again we celebrate the fourth of july you know we celebrate columbus day you know, and it's like, we have to really think about like these power structures. And that's why, like, you know, I'm happy that the Confederate monuments are being torn down too, because it's not necessary to have them. It's just not, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's reminding people of color or people in oppressed classes that this is what these areas stand for and that they're proud of. Right. And they don't, they don't see it. Yeah. They don't see it as a problem because they can't look past their own noses at and they, they can't it's back to this empathetic thing they can't be empathetic towards anyone else mm-hmm. it's all about them and their race you know mm-hmm. i was trying to think there was something in regard to something i wanted to bring up and i can't remember what um i don't know do you want to look through your notes or something like that so we can sort of like 
see how much yeah covered. so i don't have any notes i probably should have but um i'll follow your lead um i definitely thought we were going to talk more about um the shift of basically like the history of the right wing was kind of yeah where I, I, had we were a, going. I had an idea because here's the thing like trumpism is really bad but if i had to like like if i had to walk into a wrestling match with any u.s president it would be reagan like i would beat the living shit out of reagan <laughs> well <laughs> yeah so i was Nixon. i was gonna talk about right because i was gonna talk about that because in one of the questions you sent over to me was that you know who is trump more similar to and i would definitely argue both reagan policy wise right mm-hmm. and i guess part of that stardom too that they were both celebrities right that mm-hmm. they got you know ascended into power but personality wise i would argue reagan or uh, nixon so you know i don't I, do you know about watergate obviously right yeah if I you've do. been doing some research yeah. yeah that nixon was like trump incredibly paranoid that he recorded all of his white house conversations he always thought that people were out to get him you know and um so and that, which is how Nixon got busted in Watergate was because there was tons of recordings of him being like, "Yeah, it's cool that you broke into the DNC. Don't worry, we'll cover it up." But for you know, country, you know, that one thing that kind of puzzles me, um, and I'm not gonna say like, of course, that the alt right like iterations are different. As much as the alt right is very similar to fa- to fascism in its base, I also find it to be very different from fascism in terms of how it appeals to people if you think about incels if you think about the whole gamergate sgw logic and um one thing that but one thing that does kind of strike me was like at a country that has lived through war of vietnam war of iraq um reagan nixon bush senior bush Mm -hmm. jr a country Mm -hmm. that has gone through all of this crap has it never occurred to them that Trumpism would happen? What is, what makes Trumpism so like next level? Not to say that mm. Trump is not like like he does allude to, to Nazis all the time, especially with his new merchandising. But um, yeah, historically speaking, was there never a sense of it will culminate at this? This is what it's all leading up to at some point. Like this is gonna happen sooner or later, like the Simpsons did with their episode, like. Right. What was so shocking about Trump that couldn't be foreseen? So there's, there's, you know, we, we talk about if something was inevitable, right? And historians, because we get asked this all the time and not saying that I'm a historian, but I do have a degree um, that we get asked all the time of like, do you think a certain situation that's happening now was inevitable? And we as historians don't like that question because we don't believe anything's inevitable. We can definitely say that there are instances in history that could lead to something like this, but nothing is inevitable. Uh, we were talking about inevitability, right? Yeah. So we don't like to say that things are inevitable because it, 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 it puts a too deterministic view on the world where we as historians know that the world is not deterministic. Um, but Uh, as history or as people cycle through generations, we see trends, right? There was a historian, I forget his name. I have his book somewhere in the house, but I don't want to move from the spot. So I can't get it, but it's called generations theory where there's four different types of groups that cycle through time, that they're all constantly a reaction to each other. 
And mm-hmm. right now we're kind of in the, what's called the culture war generation that it's almost like the rise back in the 1920s and thirties of the intelligentsia mm-hmm. movement. So that like, we're seeing a rise in millennials in particular of being incredibly radical and in their thinking and having these discussions. So we had Gamergate and the rise of the alt-right and these like political factions where we had this big culture war. And then the generation after us, so Gen Z, which I think you're technically Gen Z. Am I correct? I'm, I'm in the cusp, but I am a Zoomer. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. So, so your generation is supposed to be the next great generation by the standards. So the world war two generation, right. Oh, that's, Who that's very, really where, <laughs> yeah. So that, that you guys are going to be the innovators and the problem solvers while the generation before you, which is the millennials are going to be doing all of the in- intellectual fighting for you to okay. get these ideas out there. And so that the zoomers can kind of take on these ideas. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of more radical left politics, politics in the zoomer generation, right or left, right. Mm-hmm. That we're seeing, you know, also, really quickly, I want to know, and I don't know if it's different for you, but I want to make a note that pretty much the alt-right, this is a huge segue, doesn't necessarily exist anymore in the United mm-hmm. States. Okay, I, I yeah, haven't seen any evidence. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the alt-right. It's almost after the Charlottesville protests. They were gone. And it was like, that was some big embarrassment for them, a big PR faux pas. And we don't really have anyone labeling themselves as alt-right anymore. And I know that's a huge segue because I was in the middle of a thing, but I wanted to point that out in this podcast before we got any further. No, because it's understandable. Brazil, everything just kind of um, evolved from Brazil's version of the alt-right into Bolsonarism, which is what I call sort of like right. surrealist fascism. I'll get into it in a minute, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so basically Charlottesville happened. We A lot of Americans know about what happened in Charlottesville where Heather Heyer had died because one of the alt-right protesters had crashed in with his car to a bunch of mm-hmm. um, counter-protesters. Um, and they, the alt-right leaders, the thought leaders, Richard Spencer, that one bald guy who's really fucking annoying, I can't remember his name, um, but they were incredibly embarrassed by it and tried to distance themselves from it and they just, they just never regained um what's the good the good pr anymore yeah like they they basically lost their trust however i would argue that instead of people calling themselves alt-right they're pretty open here to acknowledge that they're fascist yeah yeah it kind of went up to the next level right right because the alt-right's big thing was that we're not fascist we are we're not white supremacists we are identitarians. Yeah. We are white nationalists. We want a pan-European ethnostate, which, by the way, by fascist logic, makes no fucking sense, right? Because historically in fascism, it's one specific mm-hmm. ethnic group that is supposed to be at the top. And even Hitler is saying that the Nordic people were at the top because Hitler had a fascination with Odinism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that everyone else was beneath in these different classes, where Richard Spencer would make this argument that he wanted a pan-European ethnostate, and when questioned on his ethnic identity, right, he would say that he was pan-European. Where it's like, okay, so basically you're saying that you only identify with the signifier as white. So when he says pan- pan-European, does he include, like, Italians and Turkish people as well? <laughs> I don't know about 
about Turkish people, I think yeah, you would probably how consider goes the, does yeah. that pan-European go. Well, where, where is the border drawn? So I'm pretty sure that when he means pan-European, um, I think he might have said this before in a debate that he had online. I'm European, um, but only that, as far as Poland. Nothing beyond Poland. <laughs> God, no. Right. <laughs> I think he specifically refers to Northwestern European yeah. is what he means by pan-European. And I think he said that before. Mm-hmm. I'll have to double check that for you when when we get off the podcast. But yes, so that's what he means by pan-European, which a lot of people have countered being like, makes no sense because yeah, exactly what you said. Do you include the Turks? Do you include Italian people, Mediterranean people? Like, do you include Eastern European? Like, which, no, he doesn't, right? Like, of course he doesn't because he's following Hitler's playbook, right? And, you know, and man, just... His reputation got so tarnished, and same with Milo, who was, you know, an alt-right sympathizer. It was just, they realized that the alt-right couldn't hide behind the, but we're not fascist thing anymore. They couldn't hide behind it, because it was really obvious. Especially with Charlottesville saying, you know, chanting, the Jews will not replace, right? Yeah. Like, or what did Lord Southern, the, the great replacement was like her fucking video? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. God, what an idiot. And, um... They couldn't hide behind it because when questioned on how would you achieve the ethno state, right? They're like, oh, well, we would do like, you know, we would pay people to leave. And it's like, no, you wouldn't. Like, like people aren't going to leave their homes just because you want a white ethno state. Like, that means nothing. Mm-hmm. It's going to lead to violence. Even Sargon of Akkad, that dummy, dummy, dum dum, right? Called him out on that. It was like, there's no way that this will not escalate to violence. And Richard Spencer kept trying to dodge the question. And it's like, no, this is going to escalate to violence. And you know it. And it's it's a right? bit dumb because um, at the same time, it, if you think about um, Spencer's idea of a pan-European ethno-state in the times of Brexit, in which right. it was almost taken as if like... Th- the United Kingdom was like this empire that needed to unravel itself from dirty Europeans. There is a bit like of, I'm not going to say like full out, full, full blown racism because racism is a bit of a blanket term. And my conception of racism is the Brazilian conception of racism, but there is a xenophobia notion Mm -hmm. of European immigrants coming over here and leeching onto like the UK's loving arms. And Mm -hmm. How would how would Spencer what was Spencer's great plan to unify Europe Western Europe would he like would he get along with the Cockneys would he get along with a guy like Tommy Robinson would he right. get along with the well, EDL <laughs> I think he did he did support the EDL um but I think his idea of a white ethno state being that Richard Spencer is American right is that he wanted to create a white ethno state within America Which is what he means by pan-European is that those who are Caucasian, quote unquote, right, pan-European identities can come together and live peacefully in their own ethnostate in the middle of America. Make the U.S. a colony again. (laughs) Right. Like give it back to the Europeans and go back to murdering Native Americans and, you know, mm -hmm. getting all the black people out. Just like just just like a colony. Just say it's a colony from across the pond. Right. It's not going to be that right. pan-European. And also, like, if we're talking about Western Europe, where does, like, the... Um, port- where do, do Portuguese and Spanish people fit into it? Would they be white enough for him? 
or are they a bit a, a bit too on you know a bit too almost latino or would he pack them together with the french and the germans and the nordics and and the the british <laughs> like it's right so convoluted so, and so dumb yeah so i think you know he surfacely would right but i don't think necessarily that he believes that they're necessarily white either you know it's it's very back to that old school like if you are anglo-saxon then you are the supreme race mm-hmm. right um god there was something else that's dumbass shit that he said too but um i, I think it's interesting yeah go for it go for it um it's because you talk you, you were telling us about like the alt right's not a thing anymore but with the BLM protests, we've been seeing an increasingly like a skyrocketing presence of armed civilians, armed patriots, um, and the idea that Richard Spencer was always like in a supposed den- denial of the escalation of violence, um, mm-hmm. and now we've got the Boogaloo's, um, however you want to read it, right, non-right, anti-authoritarian. It's it's really difficult to make like a, a, a thorough definition of the Boogaloo's, but we do have a lot of right-wing Boogaloo's and right-wing militias coming forward, the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, etc. Um, right, and I would not necessarily con- say that they're alt-right because at least to me and my understanding of what the alt-right is, it's a very specific niche group that existed on the yeah. internet. Would you call and- it alt-right? Yeah, I I guess so. I I feel like the armed militia guys that we're seeing now that are right wing, the patriots, right? Because I always call them the patriots with like condescending quotation marks, the patriots. Yeah. Um, They're older than Mm -hmm. the alt right. Like they're they're like physically older. Like like what we were talking about earlier, how the alt right in Brazil mostly consisted of like people over 35. Yeah. Right. Where here in the United States, the alt right mostly consisted of millennials. Right. So it was people who were like 23 at the time to, you know, 35. Like that was the alt right. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't really, it was really rare outside of like Stephen Molyneux or something that you would see somebody older in the alt right group. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But now we're seeing boomers, right? And the silent generation and all the people joining in the fight, the Karens, right? You're seeing these middle aged mm-hmm. people, you know, joining the fight. So I wouldn't call them alt right. I would call them something else. And I, Honestly, I guess I must have been out of the loop this last week because I have no idea what you mean by bugaloos at all. <laughs> so oh, I must be out bugaloo. of the loop right now. Okay, that's yeah. cool. Can I give you a quick rundown? <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. I'm interested. So it's like, <laughs> it kind of stems from this message board in 4chan, which is a message board that is not politics oriented. It's a message board uh, made for guns. Okay. And um, there's sort of like this meme where people just put like, when, they, when people want to talk about the sequel of some event or or something that's happening they just go like uh this event to electric boogaloo you know and uh people started to joke about civil war to electric boogaloo and (laughs) it's sort of like kind of became like a thing where people just call themselves like the boogaloos and it's not necessarily at first it did start with right-leaning politics especially the politics of wanting to incite a civil war that seems to be inevitable in the u.s at some point and it kind of like broadened broadened itself because once people started seeing the amount of police brutality a lot of these people who went to the forum for you know for the purpose of guns they're very pro second amendment 
And, you know, regardless of being right wing or left wing, they saw uh, the presence of what would was bordering a martial law. And they were like, right. well, Trump is invoking the, the Insurrection Act and we've got this hideous amount of cops and it's the cops are in my country as well they i might not agree with black lives matter but this is dangerous so mm-hmm. i'm gonna go to the streets and some of them went to the streets to confront to confront the police sort of like uh make this about um fighting the cops and some of them went because they wanted to incite a race war so you've got people who are driving through the seattle autonomous zone and just like shooting at people and showing up with Mm -hmm. guns at the seattle autonomous zone in portland and you know you've got this massive amount of people who are walking out with guns and they've all got like different agendas and some of the agendas are like they're not even consisting within itself but and and now we've got the boogaloos who are just people who they're out with guns that's all we know you know what what for they're just it's blurry but they're out with guns you know so basically in summary that they're right wingers question mark with guns like and they're just yeah yeah and the chaos of it all yeah and but a lot of them i'm not gonna say all of them because clearly there's enough of them who are not um out with guns to incite a race war so i'm not going to generalize completely but a lot of them are out there with the idea of boogaloo or what they call it like igloos or some code word because they think that the race war is the civil war is so fucking close and they just want to give that one last push you know so right um when you it's curious because when you talk about richard spencer going like oh it's gonna escalate to violence it didn't really need to become like an ethnostate in order for it to start escalating to violence. And he was in denial of this. And it, yet it's still happening. Like, in, if you look at the nitty gritty of it, the violence that people are saying that would escalate is happening, but with a different narrative because essentially, like, the police are tear gassing and macing people for their right to kill black people unapologetically. Right. So it's another way of interpreting, you know, and the enforcement, the covert enforcement of a pseudo ethno state. It might not be the pan-European state, but it is amounting to the thing that Richard Spencer would say that it wouldn't amount to. In reality, right, he knew deep down that, of course, it would escalate to violence. You know, of course, it would escalate to genocide, right, to have this creation, because there's no way that you would be able to create a pan-European ethnostate without some semblance of violence, you know? And again, just look at fucking Germany in the 1940s. Like, that's, that's what happened, you know? And because they tried that in Nazi Germany where they, they paid Jews to leave and they deported Jews even though they were citizens of Germany, you know? So that stuff, that was all the initial steps to get the Jews out of Germany but then when the Jew, some of the Jews still wouldn't leave, right, because they were born in Germany and wanted to stay in Germany. It was their home. You know, then that's when the internment camps and the concentration camps and the labor camps all got started was because, OK, if you're not going to be willing to leave, then we're going to put you to work and kill you. Mm. You know, so and so Richard Spencer, again, was basically following the the Nazi plan, which is and he used to get so offended when people were a Nazi because he was Nazi. Um, capital N Nazi, right? Mm. So, yeah. So, but now we're seeing violence happening now 
And yeah, I mean, I, I get when people are saying that like, it's going to be a race war. Again, I'm not going to say anything's inevitable because that would make me a bad historian. Are there conditions that are happening right now that could lead to a race war? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. But there's also conditions in place that potentially not going to lead to a race war. Right. You know, we're seeing a lot of great not changes, but action being done to that, you know, BLM wants. Right. So the murderer of George Floyd is being charged. He's been indicted. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and he will go to trial and his trial is actually being moved somewhere out of Minneapolis to, you know, have less bias so that he could have a neutral jury. Um, which is going to be its own court battle as it is, because again, this was a nationwide story, a worldwide story. In fact, yeah. that I don't know where he would be able to, the, the, I guess the station of the court, there's a word, but like, I don't know where they would be able to move this case without some sort of bias, whether it be supporters of George Floyd, cause we're seeing, or, um, you know, or supporters of the murderer, you know, cause we're seeing a lot of that too. He was the criminal. So like, you know, it was fine to kill him, even though it's clearly not people have their views very skewed to see that video and not think it was terrible, you know, mm-hmm. reasons to justify their rape essentially and their support of the cops. Hey cab. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sweet. so yeah, you were oh. talking about, uh, yeah. End point, your thoughts on George Floyd and people defending the, the, the police officer. It's still a bit fucked, but one thing that, um, kind of strikes me uh when you when you okay we got into trumpism trump's elected um sure how far of how far does he go beyond what would you what you people would expect historically from the republicans is it the wall ice um is it the stormy daniels scandal what is it that sets him so apart from other republicans I mean, can I say all the above? Like, I feel like it's, there's so much about Trumpism that is shocking. And it's, and I, you know, we used to always kind of joke when he first got elected, like, oh, he's a fascist. He's a fascist. Right. But now we're in 2020 and I'm like, he's a fucking fascist. Like that's, that's the difference is that he's a legit fascist. You know, he's Mm -hmm. a dumb one, but he's a fascist. Mm -hmm. And You know, and just to get into the history of like political campaigning, and it's fairly recent history, I don't remember the guy's name. So basically back in the day that if you did anything that was a faux pas, anything, right? So Trump making fun of the disabled uh, uh, journalists, right? By, you know, wiggling his arms and stuff. We all know the clip during his campaign. That should have been the end of Trump. That would have killed anyone else's campaign, right? But it didn't. There was a guy, I don't know, like, I think maybe the 2000 election or the 2004 election. I can't remember. But he was a Democrat in the primary, and he was doing really, really well. And then he won a state. I forget which one. It was probably a swing state. And he was like, yeah, we did it. And he was wearing a cowboy hat. And he went, yeah, And that killed his political career. Oh, fuck's sake. Oh, Everyone terrible. thought he was crazy, right? And it's like, oh, he's unstable. And they went into unprofessional. And that destroyed his political career instantly. And it's like, but Trump can make fun of a disabled person and still be like cheered on. So that's why it's like, like someone like Biden would never 
be able to do that, right? To never make those cavalier jokes. Anyone, like, oh, there no. was always this, right, there was always this aura of respect, it, regardless of which politician it was, there was always this aura of respect, right? Mm-hmm. That they had to be professional, they can never point, right? That was a very political thing. If you ever see politicians, like, almost point with their knuckle, if that makes mm-hmm. sense, like the way that they hold their hand, it's because you're taught in public speaking that you should not be pointing at people because it makes you look, like, rude and inappropriate and unprofessional that you're pointing at people right but trump seems to just get away with everything and it's still to me like historically i don't understand why i don't know if it's because he's this irreverent celebrity that people tend to enjoy both on the left and right back in his heyday right Mm -hmm. so i don't i don't really know why it didn't kill his campaign the only thing i could think of is that people were just so fed up with quote unquote the establishment right and trump was saying all the right things trump went beyond the southern strategy right he was saying deliberately racist things right where the southern strategy was a like a like a covert way to be racist right in your political campaigning and both left and right did it Mm -hmm. um to win over the the democrats or the south you know, and but Trump just blatantly says racist shit all the time and he gets away with it. And it's because he makes it okay for white Americans to be discriminatory again. He you makes it okay that like he's 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 saying what's on my mind that I've never had the courage to say out loud. Yeah. And do you think that um Trumpism, like this lack of decorum, uh has affected the Dems? Because when I think about like if you take into if you pit against each other Bill Clinton and Joe Biden with the Tara Reid scandal um Bill Clinton got impeached for getting like for cheating on his wife yeah for a blowjob uh whereas Joe Biden hasn't even been elected yet and you we've already got like more than one account of sexual harassment to not say sexual mm-hmm. abuse from Tara Reid and mm-hmm. he's still going on and that is as much as it is not like um trump's spectacle just he the dems are trying to suppress it or discredit it rather than like play on it as rhetoric like you've got trump with the whole grabbing by the pussy thing um but it still is to a certain extent this idea that like it's it breaches the decorum it breaches professionalism it breaches that sort of aura of immaculacy that people that sort of regrew up as seeing politicians have, you know, and it I find right. it to be a bit bizarre because if you think about the kids who are gr- growing up like right now, p- kids who are probably like sixteen now, mm-hmm. they don't have that much of a of a memory of a politically active life that is, um, like so the framework of policies being an establishment one and a decorum one and a professionalism one you know they kind of just they grew up when, on this idea of like i i think it's Zizek who says ultra politics which enables mm-hmm. trumpism and the idea of politics of hate um right kind of grew up under this even if it was like to a certain extent a capitalist illusion we just grew up with like people like obama who is like the most charismatic man on earth charismatic mm-hmm. enough to get us forgetting about all the war crimes he's created and even like bush right. bush being like a, a, a flout out motherfucker but still you know he 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 did try and keep his posture and you know when you've got like people like mitt romney and 
um, the the McCains, uh, you still have mm-hmm. sort of like that idea that you have to be, you got to be above it to be a politician. You got to have like a certain posture. Exactly. Yeah, and kids all great and Trump throws that. that out the window. Exactly. Yeah, and Trump throws it all out the window. Where it's, and and people like like him because he's or, maybe irreverent isn't the right word that I'm using to describe him, but like that he's just, he'll just say whatever comes to his mind and people like that because to them, it makes Trump seem more human. Mm -hmm. And then your regular politicians where it's like, if you look at someone like Mitt Romney or Joe Biden and that they don't seem human, like it's, it's, they're, they're this like paper cutout of what a politician is supposed to be. So someone like Bernie Sanders, for example, or Donald Trump, right? I like to say them as almost like polar opposites of each other that because Bernie raises his voice and gets excited and, you know, it makes him more human and more appealing to someone like me on the left, right? Mm -hmm. And Trump appeals to, you're right, the politics of hatred. And again, going beyond the Southern strategy, being blatant in the racism and people are like, yes, he's saying what's on my mind. Finally, I can finally say that I don't like black people. Like that's like literally like, you know, Jesus the, the, the yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it is. And I, and, and I've always said this, that Trump enables people's worst personality traits, I guess, to come out. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, again, it's a lack of empathy and, you know, politicians tried to keep it under wraps because they want the illusion that we live in a post-racial society. And that's why a lot of these like SJW stuff started coming out during the Obama era because it was, you know, leftists. Tumblr feminist kind of critiquing the status quo, which Obama upheld. I tend to, you know. I always try and bring up, like, people really underestimate how much Tumblr impacted social life. I think that Tumblr had a huge social impact with the, like, the late millennials, early Zoomers that mm-hmm. were yet to see the extent of, like, um, in terms of political engagement in terms of media consumption in terms of aesthetics in terms of music in terms of sex you know like Mm -hmm. tumblr was huge and um yeah but that's just a tangent that's not very relevant but it is something well yeah well it, it it kind of is because when we discussed earlier like kind of the rise of the alt right and gamergate it was a reaction to tumblr feminism yeah. Right. It was it was a reaction to how I described because, again, when I was in the Tumblr era and I was becoming woke. Right. Like I always remember the term SJW created by more moderate feminists to describe kind of the ones who were willing to attack people easily rather than rather than saying, hey, what you said was racist. It was more you're racist. And like mm-hmm. so we would call those social justice warriors because we always were like, oh, they're just doing it for clout. They want yeah. reblogs. And, th- yeah. and that's how I initially learned the term. So when it got co-opted by the right, I was like, what the hell? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're, we started that, not you, right? Like, we used to call those people, you know, now we call them, like, the rabid Tumblr feminists because it mm-hmm. was, like, this jump to action where instead of it was, like, saying, hey, this is problematic, it was, you're a bad person, <laughs> was them trying to convert people. And, you know, and shame worked for a lot of people as well. But, you know, I, I do think that, Tumblr politics, right, had a huge effect on the rise of a more younger conservative movement definitely, online. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, um, 
I am so sorry to interrupt the flow of this episode and interrupt your experience listening to it. However, I was not able to upload the whole conversation in one go since it exceeded by twofold the size of the file that I'm actually allowed to upload to Anchor. So this is part one. Uh, I'm uploading part two simultaneous to part one. So you can just go ahead and check out part two. Thank you for listening this far, and sure enough, there's still another one hour and a half chunk of conversation that is still available.